Just a couple of quick things. Uh, first of all, it was Jordan's birthday yesterday, so happy birthday to Jordan. And I feel like there was another one that I'm missing. Was it someone else's birthday this last few days? Carly, I knew. It was Carly's birthday as well, so happy birthday to you. Um, a couple other quick things that I just want to mention. So the Right Now Media video that we showed, that's just an example of content that continues to come out on the Right Now Media site that you have access to. That doesn't mean you need to be part of a Bible study to watch something. All you have to do is log in at home and, uh, and, and just find something that you're really interested in. That new series just came out this last couple of weeks, and, and all it is is about that mentality that we need to have that is countercultural to our world. You don't need to influence a million people. It's not the way it usually works. And for most of us, we will influence a very few group of people in our lives. And so, yes, Shayla, is it broken? Oh, I did it again. Sunday school, you guys can go. I'm sorry. Deb's got you covered. We have to have better sign language for what that means. Well, we'll get that. Anyway, it's just that encouragement to you that Right Now Media is available to you. There's constantly more material coming out for you to grow in your own faith. And that is just one series that I recommend of just learning to influence those in your world, those that you interact with, uh, and, and be very intentional with the gospel. Uh, second thing I wanted to say, Tarchucks are not here this morning. They have a, a birthday party for their grandson who's turning three. So they're not here, but yesterday, yesterday, Shayla, Friday, one of those days, Randy and Debbie came and we were able to do some tech stuff at the back and get the camera mounted. So if you're watching online, you should see less people's heads all the time and it won't get knocked over all the time. So that's a win for us. So thanks to Randy for that. He made something work so so incredibly well that Shayla and I didn't even understand how it was going to work. So that's Mr. Tarchuk for you. So we're grateful for people to use their unique gifts uh, in, in ways of serving the church. Yes, Lee is reminding me, Phil should be reminding me, but Phil's skipping today. Um, there are, what are they called, Lee? Thank you, tax receipts at the back. If you have not gotten yours emailed to you uh, or haven't seen a copy of it, it should be on the little back table in the foyer. And if you don't see it there and you haven't received it, you just got to phone or email Phil and he will get those to you. But make sure you check the table before you leave. All right, Daniel chapter 5, you can open there this morning. Just a quick reminder, um, actually before we give a reminder, let's look forward. Next week we're going to read a big chunk in chapter 6, and it's a very famous passage, Daniel and the lion's den. And then we're going to take a break for about a month. Uh, our family, after church next week, is beginning our trip to South Africa uh, for Smonga's homeland trip, and so we'll be gone for a few weeks. Uh, and then we have a missionary coming, and then it's Easter already. So we're going to take a month break from Daniel and then we're going to jump back in uh, into chapter 7 at that point. So that's just so that you're aware of what is coming. We have uh, Tim McAlpine, whom some of you know, he used to pastor our sister church in Canmore. Uh, he'll be coming one week. And then Jim Houston, of course, is coming back again. And, and many of you know Jim. So thanks to those gentlemen for helping with that. 
So last week we looked at the beginning half of chapter 5. Today we're going to finish. Chapter 5 is an interesting chapter because there's this king named Belshazzar. And we talked about the historical accuracy of this because many, many people, many historians try and take the book of Daniel and say Daniel is not valid because chapter 5, there was no King Belshazzar ever in the history of Babylon. And we talked about that in the sense of that's true. There was no King Belshazzar, but that doesn't mean that the Bible's not accurate. Uh, what has happened here is when King Nebuchadnezzar dies, uh, his son Nabonidus takes over as rule, but for reasons that aren't real clear, he decides to rule not in the palace, but about 500 miles away in a different part of the nation. And his seemingly son, though that's not real clear whether it might be from different marriages, it might be very confusing, but his son Belshazzar is the crown prince who rules in his stead. And so historically, he was never king, but for all practical purposes, he ruled for just a very few years. And so he, uh, we looked at this last week, was very, very arrogant. And basically this morning, what we're going to talk about is a warning to us of the arrogance of Belshazzar and how easy it is for our own hearts to become arrogant and the importance of remaining humble, having humility as a center to our life and learning from not only our past, but the nation, the past, the the history that lives around us so that we don't continue to repeat the same mistakes, but so that we learn from those around us. This is one of the reasons God has created us to be in community, that we would learn from one another. But often, the sad case is, is we don't learn very well, and in fact, sometimes we need to learn the same lessons over and over again. I was reminded as I was studying through the, the first few verses here, First uh, Peter uh, says this in 5.5, 5, Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason that verse was on my mind is at our, uh, one of our Bible studies last week, one of the teachers of the video series was talking about this verse, and he brought something forward to me that's obvious in the text, and that I should have clued into, but I didn't, and perhaps you might be the same way sometimes, is he was saying that as Peter is writing this and talking about humility, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we sometimes water that down to thinking that, that God just won't bless us if we stand in pride or arrogance. That if we start to think more highly than, of ourselves than we ought to, that there's maybe just some kind of a, a distance between God and us. But what the teacher was pointing out that Peter's saying here is that if you stand in arrogance, that you are actually standing in opposition to God that you are against God in that moment. And how important it is that we would recognize that our own pride and our own arrogance is the number one problem between us and our relationship with God. So we need to humble ourselves. We need to not think that we know everything, that we're always right, but we need to listen to what other people say. We need to approach Scripture, not with our minds made up trying to prove things, but to have open hands going, God, what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me about you and your character? In what ways have I not listened or not paid attention to what you are doing? 
And that's what we're going to see here. That's what Daniel is going to call Belshazzar out on. Not listening, not seeing, and not being aware of what has happened over the last few years in the kingdom of Babylon. So real quickly, Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life, which we looked at at the end of chapter 4, in his own arrogance, um, took credit for everything that Babylon had accomplished. And God had to humble him. And, and of course, all through Daniel, this theme has been popping itself up, is that he would not humble himself. And so finally, God humbles him to the place where he basically loses his mind. And he becomes like a wild animal. And he lives out and eats grass of the field. And he sleeps on the ground with the other animals. And, and it's just this crazy situation. And for about seven years, we see that until finally... He lifts his eyes to heaven, humbles himself, comes under the authority of God. And, and of course, we looked at the end of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar writes this beautiful psalm, essentially stating, the one true God is this God, Yahweh. He is above all things. And he rules for another few years, about seven, and then he passes away. And then all of a sudden, now we have this Belshazzar. So we looked at the beginning of chapter 5 in the historical context is that the, Mesia, uh, the, the, the pardon me, Medes and Persian empires are now beginning to take over, and Babylon is slowly losing uh, their power and their control, and Belshazzar was having this massive great feast in his own arrogance, basically trying to say one of two things. He's either trying to say, there's no way you can conquer our palace, our palace is far too great, or perhaps it's his last moment of going, well, if we're going to die, we're going to die feasting and drinking and, and just basically we could say this, he's the worst ruler that you ever could see. And so what he does is he takes the sacred artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem when he conquered them, but what Belshazzar does is he brings them out and he has, says, let's drink from them and let's worship the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone and all these things. And, and he's defying the one true living God and he's challenging him to this. And what we read then is immediately God has this hand come and write on the wall this, this warning of judgment uh, for, his, for his acts. And, and that's where we ended. So that's the context. Let's read 13 to 31. And uh, and we'll spend a few minutes talking about it. It says this, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to you the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship, and greatness, and glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, You have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand your breath and whose all all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parison. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean Chaldean king was killed, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So we have this kind of immediate judgment that comes. But what I think that we can learn from here is this this warning that Daniel gives to King Belshazzar. You knew all this. You saw all this, and yet you did nothing except further the cause of your own arrogance and your own pride and stood against the king, or stood against the one true king. So the beginning of our text here, Daniel is brought before, as we talked about last week, the queen mother, uh, she knows who Daniel is, but Belshazzar doesn't any longer. Daniel is in his kind of early 80s at this point, and so he's probably been retired from the king's service for a few years, and Belshazzar should have known of him, but it seems to indicate in the text that he doesn't know exactly, specifically, who he is. The king has known and has seen that this hand, this writing, is some kind of sign of judgment. And he's been fearful and he's called everyone he can to read it. And nobody can. And I kind of mentioned this last week and we'll talk about this briefly. It seems to indicate that not only could they not interpret it, but they couldn't read it. Which is strange because Aramaic and Hebrew were kind of cousin languages and they both understood some of it. So so we'll talk about that real briefly uh, in a few moments. But Daniel comes and uh, the queen mother has said he'll, he'll be able to interpret. The spirit of the gods is in him. And so he calls him forward and he makes the same proposition to the wise men. He says, if you can do this, you're going to get right this, this royal robe. You're going to get ring on your, around your neck and your finger, whatever. You're going to get uh, the third rule of the kingdom. So that's that reminder to us again that the writer of Daniel, whether that's Daniel or somebody else, is very well aware that King Belshazzar is not actually the ruler, but he's second in command. And so he's offering 
whoever can solve this to be next in line. Daniel, in his understanding, and his um, wisdom, knows that that is irrelevant. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to look back chronologically a couple of years to where Daniel prophesied that in the third year of Belshazzar's rule over the kingdom that they would be conquered and that Belshazzar would die. So he's very well aware. What good is that? What good is it giving me some kind of a royal position? What good is it putting me third in charge of the kingdom? And so you see that in his response in verse 17. King says, here's what I'm all going to give you. What does he say? Let it be for yourself. Give those gifts to another. He's fully aware, as we all should be, that the world has nothing to offer us that God is not already in control over. Let the truth of that statement ring in your ears. There is nothing the world has to offer you that God is not in control of. And so easily we get enticed by power or prestige or the material things of the world when all of that is God's to begin with anyway. And he can give and he can take away. Daniel, being in his 80s at this point, having seen and witnessed all that God has done throughout his lifetime, is fully aware that the king has nothing to offer him that has any advantage to him. Do we understand the same? Do we know and live in such a way that we recognize the world might be a wonderful place with all kinds of beauty, all kinds of opportunities, but it has no authority over God. So we can trust in him and we don't need to run after the things of the world the way that, the way that our culture says you need a bigger bank account, you need a bigger car, you need a better house, you need the next latest technology that exists, even though the last one only came out two months ago, etc., etc. The world has nothing to offer us that God isn't in control of. Daniel knows that. Stephen Miller writes it this way, uh, clarifying, saying, Daniel refused these gifts not out of pride or rudeness, but in order to alleviate any misconception that God's services could be bought and to avoid any obligation to the king. Daniel's saying, you can bribe me all you want. It's not going to help. But this handwriting, this is a message for you. And so even, even if you want to give me the third rule in the kingdom, that's not why I'm going to interpret what's going to happen here. I'm going to interpret because God has given you a message and you need to understand it. But what's really interesting, and this is kind of the only time we see this, of the, the dreams and the interpretations that have happened in the, in the first few chapters, um, Daniel gets to the point really quickly. But here, it starts in 17 by him saying, you know, let your gifts be for yourself. And then from 18 to 23, he doesn't even interpret it. He just kind of sets the stage. Very, very boldly, he says basically this. Let's do a historical recap of your kingdom, Belshazzar. Let's look at this objectively. Is your father the king Nebuchadnezzar? Again, father not meaning dad, but meaning a pre, uh, prede predecessor. Is that the right word? Thank you, Lee. Yeah, predecessor. Um, is he started out with this understanding, or with this belief, I should say, that he was the greatest king, that he had the greatest nation, that he basically called himself God. 
But it was God who gave him that authority to rule. It was God who instituted him there. It was God's sovereignty that put the Jewish nation into exile because of their disobedience. God is the one who's in control, not Nebuchadnezzar. And throughout the course of Nebuchadnezzar's life, God was showing him through Daniel, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that it is God who rules, not you. He is the one true God. You are only a man. But in his own arrogance, he wouldn't listen. To the place where, as we recapped already, is God humbled him and put him in a place of you're going to become, you think you're God? Not only are you not God, you're actually only a man, but I'm actually going to humble you to the place where you actually think you're not even a man, but you're a wild animal. And he humbles him there. And again, we talked about, this sounds like, like kind of divine judgment against him, but it's actually it's the mercy and grace of God because God is after King Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he would rule the way that God has called him to rule with justice. And so at the end of chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar did humble himself before God. And essentially he says that God and God alone is in control. Whom God puts and appoints, he is under God's rule. And so he says, I am under God's rule and there's nothing that I can do, nothing that I can say that would change that. But notice the specific wording here in verse 20. This is right before he got humbled. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. We talked about this at our men's group this last week. The psalmist says in 95 verse 8, and this is speaking of the Hebrew people. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. And then later in the book of Hebrews chapter 3, the writer there quotes that same thing, reminding them that the Israel people, the, the, sorry, the people of Israel, their history is not a good one at this. They saw firsthand the miracle of God taking them up out of Egypt, of them standing before the Red Sea, of the Red Sea being parted, of them walking through it, of them not having water to drink and Moses striking a rock and water coming out of the rock, of them saying, we don't have food, and God saying, I'll make food rain from heaven, of them saying, we don't have enough meat, and God saying, I'm going to give you all the meat that you can handle, and so on and so on and so on. And yet their hearts continually became hardened to the point where God said, none of this generation is going to enter the promised land because your hearts are hard and you will not learn. There are massive consequences when we say to God, what you're doing is not right. And yet God in his mercy and his grace said, this next generation is going to enter the promised land. Because God still has plans and purposes. God still is at work, even though the Jewish people are exiled and they're in Babylon and Babylon's about to be conquered by the Medo-Persia Empire as well. God's still saying, I'm still in control. I'm still sovereign. I still have purpose. I still have meaning. Oh, that we would learn that message. And this is what Daniel is saying to Belshazzar. You saw all of this happen. You know 
this. You've seen this, and yet in your own arrogance, you did what no other king did, where you went and gathered the sacred artifacts together, then you, then you drank wine from them, and you got plastered with your whole kingdom there, worshiping gods that, in, in his words, he says this, right, that do not see, they do not hear, and they do not know, but the one true God that holds your life in his hand is the one that you have opposed, that you have gone against you will not honor he's basically saying how did you miss this how did you not learn from nebuchadnezzar and so before we deal with the interpretation of it which is going to be real quick this this truth needs to come true in our own minds as well see we live in a culture and in a time and in a place right now where we don't want to learn from history we want to erase it and pretend like it didn't happen. But what happens if we do that? We don't learn. We're destined to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And as I just kind of briefly showed with the Hebrew people, is they weren't erasing their history. They were writing it down so that we could see it, and yet they continued in their error. See, I think it's vitally important for all of our spiritual growth and our our lives in general that we constantly look back and remind ourselves from where we came from, who we were without God in our lives. The lack of purpose, the meaningless that we had, the uncertainty of hope and future and all those things. And And then when we placed our faith in Christ, all of that changed. That doesn't mean life got simple. But it does mean that we now have purpose and meaning. And so we look back on our lives to remind ourselves. But Paul does this several times in Scripture, sometimes reminding himself of who he was and how that was completely useless. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had all the right credentials, he says in Philippians, and yet it was nothing. He counts it all as garbage. Oh, that he would only know Christ. This is why I think the Old Testament is so vitally important for us because we are no different than the Israelite people. How quickly we are to forget God's blessings and the work in our lives and how much we need to read through and remind ourselves, look, God is faithful. Look, God is faithful. Look, God fulfills his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. Because I don't know about you, but in my life, whenever there's crisis, I immediately forget everything good, and all I can think of is, God, why have you allowed this to happen? How could this situation possibly be for your good? And then we start to throw that pity party attitude where we get so consumed with our own troubles that we forget all the many years of God's faithfulness and what he has done. And again, I think this is a reason we're brought into community so we can have good, faithful brothers and sisters who can, you know, smack us when we need it and remind us, look, look what God has done. Look what God is doing in your life. Look at the growth that has happened. Remind yourself you are not who you once were. You were a child of God. And you are a son or a daughter of the king, and you are loved by him. He is at work in your life. I know I'm probably belaboring this point here, but I think it's necessary for us because, as I mentioned earlier, our own pride and our own arrogance is the number one inhibitor with our relationship with God. 
Will we submit ourselves and trust and say, God, I don't understand what's going on in my life, but I know that you do. I trust that what you say in Romans 8 is that you have good for me in store, that you are at work in these difficulties and crisis and pain and hurt. You are at work and you want to do something redemptive in it that people would know that you are the one true God. Will we submit ourselves to that? That's the whole lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. And three short years later, Belshazzar is about to lose the kingdom for the exact same reasons. So after a, I guess we could say after a sizable rebuke from Daniel, actually Stephen Miller writes it this way, it's really good. He says, Daniel concludes his sermon by telling Belshazzar that it was because of his blasphemous, defiant actions that the hand of God sorry, that the hand was sent from the living God. The old prophet's words demonstrated great courage in the face of a monarch who thought he held the power of life and death over him. May we remember that. Nobody holds anything over us that God is not going to allow. Reminds us back of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No matter the situation that you stand in front of, you can go, our God is able to save us. But even if he won't, even if he doesn't, we will not worship you. That's the reminder. And Daniel, you know, maybe, maybe being in his 80s at this point, he's got nothing to lose, but I, I don't really think that's the point. I think he's seen my God is faithful, and I will trust him no matter what. And so finally he gets to the interpretation. Three small words. And it's interesting to me that it says at the beginning that they at the beginning of chapter five, excuse me, that they couldn't read it. Here in the later half, when it says in verse uh, sixteen, um, oh sorry, not sixteen, fifteen, they could not give its interpretation. He there doesn't say that they couldn't read it, and so there's lots of speculation about this. I'm going to give you what is the most compelling argument that I found as I was reading. Uh, theologian Robert 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 Chisholm wrote this. He says, mene literally means 50 shekels. However, it sounds like a related word in Hebrew that says numbered. Belshazzar's days were numbered and his reign was about to come to an end. Tekel means shekel, so individual, one shekel. This is a play on a related Hebrew word meaning weighed, Belshazzar had been weighed like a shekel on the scales of divine justice and been found lacking. Parson, meaning half a shekel, was taken as a play on a related word, meaning divided. Furthermore, it sounds like Persian, who is part of the empire that conquers him. And so what Chisholm is suggesting here is that the, three, that the interpreters of the king knew what these three words meant, but what they saw was 50 shekels, shekel, half a shekel. What does that mean? And so while they knew the words, there was not any kind of clear understanding of it. And Chisholm suggests, and this is a common thing that you see all through the Old Testament, is that the Hebrew writers love to use words and make a play on those words. Often using words that have the same letters in them, but that are turned in a different order to mean something very specific and unique. And, and his argument is the prophet Daniel very clearly understood this, kind of like a homonym, if you will. And so he reads this, and he, he doesn't say 50 shekels, one shekel, half a shekel. He goes, 
you, your kingdom, your days have been numbered. God has found you wanting. You have not humbled yourself until your kingdom is about to be taken away. Your moral compass is so screwed up that on the divine scales of justice that, that you have been found wanting. And that your kingdom is not only about to be taken from you, your life is about to be taken from you, and the very people who are about to take it from you are standing outside your door. Whether the king knew that this literally was his last moments, that this was his last evening, that's not clear in the text. But Daniel writes to us that very night he was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. A couple of quick things. As we move into chapter 6 next week, this is why you see Darius all of a sudden so connected to uh, Daniel, because Daniel was put, as we read in verse 29, he was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made that he was third ruler of the kingdom. So that means when Belshazzar dies, who's in charge of Babylon, technically? Daniel. But Daniel's a Hebrew, and he's not a Babylonian, and, and as we're going to see next week, Darius knows this, but he sees and understands there's something unique about this Daniel. He's been placed here for a reason and for a purpose. And so again, what we see is the overall theme of Daniel is God is sovereign. He's in control. He's at work. No matter how difficult the situation seems, no matter what is going on in your life and in my life, God is in control. So this warning to us of this chapter 5, the only chapter in all Scripture that talks about this one unique man named Belshazzar, would you not make and would I not make the same mistakes that he does? Would we look back on our history? Would we learn from the mistakes that we've made? Would we see the faithfulness of a God who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us? And would we trust him that even though what we're going through right now may be very beyond our explanation, filled with heartache and pain and confusion, may we still trust that God is at work because nothing is outside of his control. The world doesn't win. God wins. May we remind ourselves of that. When we read these warnings, when we get to places in Hebrews where the writer says, do not harden your hearts, like the people did when they saw all these miracles and yet didn't even get to enter the promised land because they would not trust that God knows better than they do. Again, arrogance and pride are the biggest inhibitors of our relationship with God. And so my prayer for all of us is this, that whenever we think we know better than God, that we would repent of that that we would open scripture and that we would remind ourselves that God has purpose and meaning in everything. That we would bow our knee the way that Nebuchadnezzar did, that we would humble ourselves and that we would say, no plan of yours can be thwarted for you alone are God. And then would we step out in faithful courage to believe, God, you are right, you are just, I can follow you. And would we remind ourselves that the world has nothing to offer us that isn't already in God's hands? We can trust him. 
Let's put our faith and hope there. Let's pray. God, as we consider these verses, as, as they kind of ruminate in our minds and in our hearts, God, I confess that in my own heart there is so much pride and arrogance that I don't want to admit is there. God, it's so easy to look back at the Hebrew people as they wandered through the wilderness and, and wonder, how could they not see your hand on them? How could they forget the miracles? How could they forget your leadership and your direction? And yet I do the same thing so often. And so God, would you help us to enter into the story of Scripture would you remind us that we are no different than any of these characters in the Bible, that we have so much arrogance in our heart that need to be repented of, that we need saving. And so would you remind us to read the stories of Jesus Christ, that you had purpose and plan right from the beginning of the Bible, that you knew that our hearts were filled with wickedness, arrogance, that we would, need a, we would need a Savior. And so God, I thank you that in your providence that you plan to send Jesus Christ to the earth, that he willingly died on the cross for our sins, that we might be able to have hope, that we might be able to know that you have conquered death and sin and that you and your faithfulness can be trusted with every aspect of our lives. And so God, this morning, for anyone here who is hurting, who is at a time of uncertainty in their life, anyone who's going through pain or grief, God, would you remind them this morning that you have conquered the world, that we can trust you and that you will use whatever situation we're going through in some kind of beautiful, redemptive way so that people would know that you are God. Would you help the way we live? Would you help our actions and our words to show that we trust in you because of the blood of Jesus Christ? God, help us to have soft hearts that don't become hardened, but that recognize that you are in control. Help us to submit to that every morning when we get out of bed. Remind ourselves of your faithfulness. And God, as we enter into this next chapter, again, showing what you are capable of, would we willingly run after you because the world has nothing to offer us that isn't already in your hands. God, thank you for what Scripture teaches to us this morning. Go with us today. Give us opportunities to love and to show grace and mercy to those that we encounter. Help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're grateful for all that you have done. Go with us today. Amen.
Thank you all for joining us. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like to help uh, with soul food, you just pop over here to the kitchen and Ryan will put you to work real quick. And the more of us that do it, the quicker we'll be. And we just thank you for those who, who are helping. Hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.